So if you walk through the hallway back here and you look to the left on the way through, there's like a, a little window into Christmas of our past. I don't know if it's, so the first week, every week there's something new in there. You know, the first week there was like a frosty, but then the next week there was the abominable snowman. You know, the guy with oh, his, his tooth is hurt, so it makes him very angry. You know, and then and then we got uh, what's what's the dude the next dude that was in there? Hurt what? Hermie was the next one, and now we got the Charlie in the box. It's like, oh, I'm the Charlie in the box, that, that guy. Uh, and, and I think we're going to get Yukon Cornelius soon. Yukon Cornelius. I know, if, I, seriously, if you're like under 30, you're like, what? <laughs> it's all right, I know. They're creepy, claymation, cartoons, whatever. But they speak to the heart of me because it's just awesome. Anyway, Jess has been doing this, and it's been really, really awesome. And I just like to point her out for doing a great job on the, on the window. All right. So uh, we are doing Christmas Eve services, uh, 7, 9, and 11 p.m., 7 p.m. service, child care. That service only. And seriously, what do you want to bring your baby to like an 11 o'clock service for? What's wrong with you, right? So... See, it's like you guys. She's like 12 hours off. It's like, I'm going to the 11. I like the 11 personally because I like going and getting out like right at Christmas Day. It's like, yay. Maybe I go home and open some gifts because it's Christmas. Awesome. So anyway, uh, if you want to come to one of our Christmas Eve services, you probably want to come a little early because literally they're, they're packed. Not because we do such a great job. I think people feel guilty on Christmas Eve. I got to go see Jesus or something. I don't know. All right. So everybody comes to church and you should come too because our Christmas Eve services are a lot of fun. They're, they really are. And, and this year uh, we're gearing up to have some really cool stuff. So come and actually be really surprised when you get here because we're going to give you something. And it's, it's, it's not like a, a poking the eye with a sharp stick. It's something actually really cool. So you, it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. Uh, if you have a smartphone, you download an app. It's called YouVersion. And in YouVersion, you'll get all the verses, all the notes, all the, the questions and all that. Also, on the bottom right-hand corner in those notes, there's what's called a QR label. And if you have a QR reader in your smartphone, you can scan that, and it'll bring up uh, the web page that we have that's all about the gospel class. So if you're newer and you want to know more about what that is, you can scan that with your QR reader, and it'll bring up things about that. Um, so did you all bring your cookies this morning, by the way? We handed out bags last week. Bring your cookies. Anybody forget? Sinners. We take the extra cookies, we send them out to the guys at Vandenberg so they have something on Christmas Eve. Oh, you guys, oh, I hope you're guilty now. Bring your cookies, we're going to send them out to run home and back. You'll, you'll all be okay. Uh, and, and then we have this thing I want to tell you guys about Christmas for kids. Uh, we did this thing called Christmas for Kids yesterday where we took a bunch of families in our community who maybe didn't have enough this Christmas season. We took their kids out Christmas, Christmas shopping. Uh, we had some people say thanks. It was really cool. The, the news showed up, which we didn't try and make it happen. They just called us, hey, we're here doing this thing. So they came and they, and they did that. Uh, first year we did this, we started with eight kids. Last year we had 16. This year we had 47. And I got to tell a big thank you to you guys because honestly, we were scrambling at the last minute and you guys' donations just to Christmas to kids covered all the stuff that we did. And so you guys, awesome. Way to go. Share the love of Jesus. I got one card from a kid. Not that the other ones didn't say thank you, but apparently one is just very creative. And apparently we're all long, blonde-haired people at Element. <laughs> so it says, uh, Merry Christmas and thank you. Thank you for inviting me to this. You're the coolest people ever. And oh, I, and then there's like 15 dots, dot, 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 
dot. Wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you guys stand with me? Reading the God's Word, we will get started. It's Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. It says, Whatever you do in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would teach us to be a people who live in such a way that you are glorified in all that we do. That as we look at these people called saints, that we would see the heritage they leave us, but our focus would be upon you and who you call us to be, and how we can bring you greater glory and honor by how we live our lives. Amen. Have a seat. So we are doing this short three-week series before Christmas about figures from church history. Uh, we may do this every once in a while, but we're looking at how these people and how they live can actually deepen our faith. The first week we talked about St. Patrick. Last week we talked about St. Mary. And today, before we get to Christmas, we'll talk about St. Nicholas. It's kind of funny how that works. Not really because we plan it that way, so it all works out. We kind of talked about a bunch of different things as we got into the saints of what we wanted you guys to walk away with. But really, what we really want you to walk away with is, is how our faith in Christ and who He is and what He calls us to leads us to the mission that He intends for all of us to be upon. And so we are to live with the gospel as truth and know these people that make our heritage deeper, but essentially focus on who Christ is and then the mission He calls us to. Uh, all people who believe in Jesus Christ are saints. This is from our spiritual union with Jesus Christ. Paul expresses this uh, thought over and over and over throughout his letters. And he uses this phrase, in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.6 talks about how God gave us grace that we have been saved. And he says, And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, Christ, his new creation, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. So the use of this term saint, it does not emphasize so much necessarily personal holiness, though our conduct and how we live should look better and better and more like Christ the longer that we are believers, but it's more an objective status that each believer possesses because the merits of Christ have been given to us. It's called imputation. He gives us his righteousness placed upon us. And so saint does not refer to some condition after death. If you look to the New Testament writers, the phrase is always used the people who are very much alive. All right, so that's what it is. So the first week in Saints, we looked at the Celtic view of mission with St. Patrick. And last week, we looked at the Jewish mother's view, how she worshipped Jesus and what her mission was. And today, we're going to hopefully help you get a grasp of something you maybe didn't even know that was all that different as we look at St. Nicholas. But there's going to be a whole trek to get there. I hope I do not lose you on the way. If I do, grab onto somebody else, and hopefully they're going in the direction we need to go. Uh, the larger-than-life myths that all surround this guy called Santa Claus actually emanate from a very very real person called St. Nicholas. And it's really difficult to know a lot of the exact details of his life with certainty because the ancient records are very sparse. But from these various pieces, you can put together a mosaic of his life and what it looked like. Uh, Nicholas was born in the 3rd century in a village in what is now modern-day Turkey. He was born into an affluent family, but his parents died quite tragically when he was very young. His parents had raised him to be a Christian. They lived for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ in their lives in a time when you could be killed quite readily for claiming the name of Jesus. And so he saw what Christianity was supposed to look like. This led him, as he got older, to spend his great inheritance on helping the poor, especially children. He was known to frequently give gifts to kids, uh, sometimes placing them in socks that he would hang out with treats and gifts for them to have. 
Nicholas's most famous act of kindness was helping three sisters. There's a family who had, who had three daughters, didn't have any money to offer a wedding dowry for their daughters. And so these three young Christian women were facing a life of prostitution until Nicholas shows up and pays their dowry. Thereby, he saves them from a life of horrible sexual slavery. He grows up to be a well-loved Christian leader. He's eventually voted to be the Bishop of Myra, which is a port city that all the way back in Acts 27, Paul actually visits at one point. Uh, Nicholas travels to the legendary council of Nicaea, where he helped defend the deity of Jesus Christ in AD 325. Now, he dies on, November, on December 6, 343 AD, and he's canonized by the church as a saint. Because of his impact and what he did, on the anniversary of his death, they created a holiday called the St. Nicholas Holiday, where gifts were given to each other in his memory. He remained a very popular saint among Orthodox and Catholic Christians, where there were almost 2,000 churches that were named after him. Now, the, this holiday in honor eventually merges with Christmas, which was originally a, a pagan holiday, and they merge it with the St. Nicholas holiday so they can reach more people. So they can say, hey, you know what? We have something. You can know who Jesus Christ is because we're going to mix these things together and we're going to show you the greatness and the glory of who God is. So this is what they do. Now, the question really comes down to why would St. Nicholas live the way he did? Why would he help others? What is it about Christianity that makes him live the way that he did? That's going to kind of be our trek this morning as you understand the tradition where he comes out of. Christianity today, there are three major divisions. There's Roman Catholicism, there's Eastern Orthodoxy, and then there's Protestantism. Now, there's other things like you know Syrian and Coptic, but those actually fall in, under those three major divisions. The least known to us today is something called Eastern Orthodoxy. If people in America know anything about it, they think it's like, Catholicism without the Pope. And it's not. For a time, they actually had their, their own Pope. But it's not, that's not what it is. Where most people call themselves Christians, they approach Christianity and ask some questions like, how is a person saved? What is the church? Where does religious authority lie? Protestants and Catholics simply disagree on some, not all, of those answers. And orthodoxy, however, it's not merely the answers that are different. The questions themselves are not even the same questions. Orthodoxy reflects a distinctive history and a very unique culture. So the best place to start understanding orthodoxy is its basic doctrines. They have these it's not as basic doctrines, they're the images that they have. They're called icons. Here's a picture. Okay, this is some of the icons you would see if you were in an Orthodox church today. Here's another one. So you have this nimbus that circles around people's heads. This is basic to understanding Orthodoxy. Uh, the Orthodox believer who enters his church to attend services, for example, the first place they go is this place that, that's called the Iconastasis. Now, I have an have a Orthodox friend, and he tells me that's how you pronounce it. I always think I should say it, Iconostasis. But he goes, no, that's not how you say it. And I'm like, okay, however you say it, that, that's good. So this is what it looks like. You would walk in, and you would walk up to this. Is that the first or the second one? There's the second one. This is the larger church. It's like, holy cow, gigantic, right? Right? So what they do when they walk in, this wall of these pictures separate the sanctuary from the nave. And so you would walk in, and they would kiss the icons before taking their seat in the congregation. An Orthodox believer does not consider these images of Jesus and the saints simply as works of, of men. They see it as the manifestations of the heavenly ideal. They're kind of a window between the earthly and the celestial worlds. It is impossible for us to understand orthodoxy apart from these icons. Now, I know you're thinking that's really weird, right? You're like, oh, that's a little awkward. Well, it's not as weird as you might think. The, the whole idea of image and what that looks like is key to understanding the ways of God with men. Man is created in the image 
image of God. That's the word icon. The, the, man carries the icon of God within himself. And where modern day Western Christians, we understand the fundamental relationship between God and man in legal terms. We talk about redemption. We talk about justification. We talk about sins and a debt that man is obliged to adjust God that we have sinned against. In the Eastern church, they believe that, but it's not their focus. The great theme of Orthodox theology, the incarnation of God and the recreation of man. According to orthodoxy, it's not just when a man sins that he violates this divinely established covenant between God and man. It's that he reduces the divine likeness in himself. He influ- he, he, what he does is he, he, creates a, he inflicts a wound on the original image of God that man was created in. So salvation to them would consist of the restoration of the full image of God. Christ, the incarnate God, came in flesh to restore us to the image, the icon of God in man. The major themes in orthodoxy are rebirth, recreation, and the transfiguration of man. And you've got to be really careful with it because it does kind of get very man-centered. And so they look at the church and they see the church not as some type of formalized institution, but the mystical body of Christ that constantly is renewed by the Holy Spirit flowing through it. And it is within this community of love that man is restored to the likeness of God. I think if we understood this in its proper context, you know, without worshiping ourselves, obviously without kissing paintings, but if we understood that we are creating the image of God and we live that, it would deepen our understanding of our faith and we'd probably live a little bit better. Now, these fundamental differences between the, the Western and the Eastern church were present as soon as the gospel started to go out, especially in places like Rome and Corinth. The distinctively Eastern Christian faith appears very strongly first under Constantine. Really few events have introduced more and greater change into the church than Constantine. During the 300s, Constantine's conversion was vital for the development of orthodox theology. He creates an alliance between the church and the state and made purity of uh, Christian doctrine central to the empire. Now, Western Christians today, we look back at Constantine and, and the things that he did, and we view this as the beginning of enslavement by the church, by the state, because we're very individualistic. Eastern Christians, though, they look at Constantine, and they view him as the initiator of the Christian world. They view him as a hero that brought the victory of light over darkness and crowned the courageous struggles of all the martyrs. Constantine, when he first becomes a Christian and then he becomes emperor, he realizes that Christianity itself is divided over some of the traditions and some of the doctrines and practice. And what he begins to do is he gets a little scared that God's going to hold him responsible as emperor for these divisions and for these quarrels. So he's lived in a little bit of fear in his life. But he thought if Christianity lacked cohesion, how could it reflect the true image of God? So he calls all the leaders of the Christian church together to assemble in his presence and to agree upon a definitive, correct tradition. This actually becomes part of the Eastern and Western church for centuries. The first general council was at Nicaea in 325 to the seventh also at Nicaea in 787. It was the emperor who called the council and the emperor who presided over it. Now, don't go all Da Vinci Code on me. Da Vinci Code is terrible history, right? So don't go all Da Vinci Code on me because the emperor didn't call this to tell them what to believe. The emperor called them together and what he did is he made sure that everybody was civil and they had the discussion. He kept order but he did not enforce any decisions that they made. Okay? The change in, early, in the early days of the faith were remarkable in a very, very good way, largely dealing with wanting the church, her people, to be restored to the image of God. The early church considered herself a body, a living organism, and all men throughout all the empire could be members of this body. What eventually happens, though, that is bad, is that all of these icons begin to lead to idolatry. And there's a conflict that raged for hundreds of years between the Western and the Eastern church. 
And it came down to a level that was a disagreement over which things were sufficiently sacred and holy and deserve worship. If you've been at Element any length of time, who is the only one worthy of worship? Jesus. There you go. Jesus. If you don't know the answer... Jesus, there you go. Uh, everything, though, in the Eastern Church started to become holy. The Christian clergy, yay, ta-da, were holy because they were set apart by ordination. You had church buildings were set apart by dedication, so they were holy. Certain water was blessed, that became holy. Certain food became holy. The martyrs and heroes of the faith were set apart by their deeds, and so we call them now saints, and do they not deserve the same reverence as clergy? Holy. It's like they had a holy stamp. They start walking around going... Holy, holy, holy. Oh, not you. Okay, this one over to that. Right? And they started stamping everything as holy. By the time the 6th century comes around, the Eastern tradition and government has actually started encouraging people to make their own things that they wanted to stamp as holy. Christian icon making, the revering of monastic holy men, they didn't realize that this uncontrolled place where everybody's calling everything holy led people to disassociate with the entire church as a whole. And they started to worship all of these idols. Most ordinary Christians failed to distinguish between the holy object or holy person and the spiritual reality for which it stood for. Many, like much Christians do today. You have people who will venerate a cross and not Jesus who died on the cross. It is always about Jesus. They fell into idolatry. Now here's a picture of Justinian. Justinian raids 527 to 565. What he does in Constantinople, the seat of power at this point, is he erects a huge statue of Jesus over the bronze gate. This is the main gate into Constantinople. And what people started to do is they started to worship the statue and not worship Jesus. This is one of the reasons in the Old Testament when God talks to his people, he says, do not make any graven image of me. Why? Because people will worship the image and they won't worship him. He's like, don't make pictures of me. I don't want people worshiping paper or scrolls or animal skins. I want them worshiping me. And seriously, we do this all the time. We worship all kinds of things that are not Jesus. Eventually, uh, the icon of Christ appears on the reverse side of coins. In Mark chapter 12, verses 14 through 17, these people go to Jesus and they say things like this. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Verse 15 says, But knowing their hypocrisy, he, Jesus, said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So what they did now, they just put Jesus' picture on the coins. Hey, give it to the church. It's got Jesus' picture on it. It's got to go where he said. You don't think it's I think it's hilarious, you know. It's a giving campaign beyond giving campaigns right there. In the 8th century, you have a guy. His name is Leo III. He reigns 717 to 741. This is one of the best likenesses we have of him actually on a coin. And for the first time, an emperor comes in and he launches an attack on the use of icons. He openly declares his opposition to all these icons for the first time. It's like if I came into a church and said, Stop venerating crosses! Worship Jesus! We're going to move this cross over here! And people would be like, Ah! And they'd want to get rid of me just because I'm stating the truth. So what he does is he sends one of his officials to the bronze gate to remove this, this icon that people are worshiping instead of Jesus, and then he wants to set up a cross, which is really funny because he's just setting up another icon. So he wants to remove it. This official goes down and starts to get there. An angry mob rises up and murders him. 
all throughout the empire, when they tried to take down these icons, there's all these little rebellions that broke out, these little wars that took place. It was crazy. People vigorously rebelled against taking down the icons. And the people who were opposed to the icons became known as the iconoclasts. These are the image breakers because they want to replace religious icons with traditional Christian symbols like the cross or the Bible and elements of the Lord's Supper, not realizing they had made those into icons themselves. The icon supporters consisted largely of monks, uh, uneducated, superstitious followers of the general population. The reason why monks wanted to keep the icons is because that ha- that's how they made their money. They would make icons, you would go there, you would buy the icons, that's how they got their money. When I was in Egypt a few years ago, I actually went to a Coptic church and that's how they make their money. They sell, and so I bought one, I don't worship it, don't worry, I actually bought it because I thought it would make a great tattoo. So I brought it home and I was talking to Saban, like, hey Saban, look, right in here, you know, it's awesome. So, yeah, my mom's like, what is wrong with you? you say things like that. Anyway, uh, to me it's all very pinky in the brain like, if you ever, no, all right. Another cultural reference that falls flat. Wonderful. All right. So, you, so through these years of the Justinian, the ultimate iconoclastic conflict, the, the difference with the Orthodox Church and the Eastern Church and, and the Western Church, uh, the Catholic Church in the West, they start to divide and get wider and wider. The doctrines and practices, the two have slowly drift apart. What they did is they divide over things that were not Jesus. They, they quibble over one word in the Apostles' Creed. It's called the filial quay, if anybody actually really cares. They insisted on different practices for Lent. They had huge issues over the different types of bread you would use when you celebrate communion. Oh, how dare you use that bread? Oh, this, this is terrible. Eventually, because of these cultures and different histories, they were driven apart. In 1054, Pope Leo IX sent a cardinal to Constantinople, which is the seat of Orthodox theology and power to try to work out an agreement between the two. Now, don't you think that he's such a nice guy? For, for years, the church in the West was making fun of the church in the East. The church in the East is making fun of the church in the West. This divide just gets wider and wider. Finally, one pope sends a guy out and says, hey, let's work out our differences and, and figure this out. So when, when they get there, the patriarch of Constantinople humiliates the papal party, succeeds in provoking them into excommunicating the Eastern Church. You know what the Eastern Church does? excommunicates the Western church. It's like, oh yeah, you're going to hell. No, you're going to hell. No, no, I said it first. You're going to burn. You're going to burn. It's hilarious, right? Religious people, they're just crazy. They're just crazy. Today, out of the vast empire that was, that was put toward uh, Orthodox Christianity, only Greece and half of Cyprus remain Orthodox today and, and also a large chunk of Russia. Just a quick little side story about this. Uh, Boris, king of the Bulgarians in the 9th century, converted to Orthodoxy. Vladimir, the grand prince of Kiev in the 10th century, he converts to it. And this is how Vladimir converts to it. He hears about the magnificence of Constantinople. So he takes some of his advisors and sends them down to go check it out. Now, where they go to church when they get there is the Church of Holy Wisdom. Looks like this. This is what it looks like today. Okay, This is Hagia Sophia, Saint Sophia. This is what the church is. Now, here's an artistic representation of what it probably looked like at the time. See that gigantic building in the back that overarches the entire city? That's the Church of Holy Wisdom. And so they would come to the city and you would see this structure. And it was just huge. Yes, it is from Assassin's Creed. Okay, so. <laughs> I know some of you are going, wait, wait. I played this. Right? <laughs> okay, anyway. The new one, Revelations. Anyway, so. 
You guys just don't care. Okay, so anyway, this is, this is what they would see when they came into this. And it was like, and so th- this is what his envoy actually writes back to Vladimir when they went to church in the place of holy wisdom. It says, We know not whether we were in heaven or on earth, for surely there is no such splendor or beauty anywhere upon the earth. We cannot describe it to you, only we know that God dwells there among men, and that their service surpasses the worship of all other places, for we cannot forget that beauty. Actually, part when they made some of these icons and things like this, it actually drew people to know who Jesus Christ was. Over the years, Russia made all the aesthetic glories of Orthodox Christianity her own, all the icons. Gradually, Moscow begins to see herself as the leader of the Orthodox world. A theory develops in orthodoxy that said there had been one Rome in Italy and it had fallen to the barbarian hordes. And then because they're Eastern, they had to make fun of the Catholic Church and they say, and the Roman Catholic heresy. It's kind of funny. Uh, and then there's a second Rome that was in Constantinople and it fell when the Turks came through. And now there's a third Rome in Moscow. The uh, emperor in, in Russia actually took his name from Caesar, Tsar. That's where it comes from. So you're probably going, okay, St. Nick. What does this have to do with St. Nick? Glad you asked. Nicholas was from this movement at the very beginning, when it was not full of idolatry, but passion for imaging who Christ is in all a person did. Reminding people that we are to image Christ to the world around us. We are to be the hands and feet of Jesus everywhere we go, that He lives through us. And Nicholas knew it was all about Jesus. By the time you get to the Reformation, 1,200 years later, Nicholas had fallen out of favor with Protestants, not because of his works and what he did, but because he was canonized as a saint, and they did not believe he should have holidays for people, but for Jesus. His holiday was not celebrated in any Protestant country except Holland, where his legend as Sinterklaas, St. Nicholas, Sinterklaas, which is where we get our word Santa Claus, comes from. In Germany, Martin Luther replaced him at the Christmas celebration with the Christ child as the object of holiday worship, and this became known as Christ Kindle, which you eventually get the word Chris Kringle, which is just another word for Saint Nick. It's kind of crazy. It just kind of all goes back to the same place. Uh, most other legend, legends about Santa Claus are a compilation. Like, for example, there was a a myth that, myth that took place that uh, demons were, were harassing children in their homes and St. Nicholas went in and he cast the demons out. Some people say, well, this is, this is about you know, going up the chimney and down the chimney. I don't think so. Where I think the whole chimney thing comes from is there a, there's a Siberian myth around the North Pole and there's a holy man, a shaman that was around there at a time. They'd go into people's homes and leave them mushrooms as gifts. I know if you're a hippie pot smoker, you're like, that is the, that's the best Santa Claus story ever. <laughs> Woo! Where do I find that one? Right? According to legend, all right, he would, he would hang them in front of fire to dry, and reindeer would eat them, and people would eat them, and oh, they can fly! You know? How amazing is that? As the, as, the Santa, as the Santa Claus myth kind of starts going farther and farther north, it kind of mixes with this, and all of a sudden, you know, Santa comes down the chimney, leaves presents over the mantle, and he flies off on the reindeer. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> The, the stories about Santa Claus were first brought to America by Dutch immigrants in the early 20th century. Stores began having Santa Claus present for children to go and tell them what they wanted for Christmas. Children also began to send letters to the North Pole as legends surrounding this really simple Christian man grew totally out of proportion. It's kind of like the whole idea of imaging Christ and who we are just totally went in a terrible direction and got all out of proportion. 
I'll tell you this. Nicholas worshipped Jesus. There are so many legends and so many controversies, but we are really called to be a people who believe and live originally what both branches taught. We are to image Christ and who we are. Well, knowing our redemption was bought for and paid for by a good and loving God that sent His Son to die and rise from the dead for us. From the little historical facts that we know about Nicholas, I'm sure he would want Christmas to stay focused on Christ, just like we at Element want it to as well. If you have a Bible, open to the book of Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. A couple things would be good for us to remember in this whole idea about St. Nicholas and ourselves, especially at Christmas. Nicholas was a gift giver. He was a gift giver. He helped the poor. He rescued the helpless. Jesus calls you and I to be this as well. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 to 36, the king is speaking to his subjects. And he says, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. This is how Jesus calls us to live, as his image bearers to the world around us, living as his hands and feet. The second thing is Nicholas was a pastor. God placed certain things under his care, and he stewarded them well. If you are a father and you have children, I will tell you, you are a pastor to your family. I am not the pastor to your family. You are, first and foremost, the pastor to your family. And you need to remember that. All of us has things that God has placed underneath us to steward and steward well. Nicholas understood this and he pointed to Jesus. And the third thing is that Nicholas was a saint. He was a saint. He did many good and great things, but none of those things made him a saint. It was Jesus and his redeeming work in him that made him a saint, just like Christ's redeeming work in all of us is what makes us saints as well. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I'll tell you, our God is these things as well. Our great God is a gift giver. He offers us love and grace and redemption. Our God is our senior pastor. He is our great shepherd. Peter tells us this, that over the church, we have one senior pastor, and that is Jesus. And because of his righteousness, we too can become saints. To wrap up just these three weeks about these saints, I will tell you, like St. Patrick, like St. Mary, like St. Nick, be like them and worship Jesus. That's who we need to worship, is Jesus. And if anything ever comes up that pulls your focus away from who he is, you get rid of that, and you worship Jesus. The band's going to come up. Do a couple songs here. Uh, and as we do, we invite you to communion. Communion is where you break that cracker, which is, reminds us of Christ's body that was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. Remind us of his blood that was shed for you and I. So we can be saints. So we can be these people and live lives. And hopefully we will begin to live lives that leave a deeper heritage when we are gone. That we think about our legacy. And hopefully it will inspire hope and confidence to trust Jesus Christ and those around us. Uh, there will be some elders in the back. And if you need prayer for anything... Uh, I mean, again, Christmas, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, it would be a great time to go and pray and talk with them. It would be a great Christmas thing for you, right? Jesus is just a gift giver wants to give it to you. If you have anything else you need prayer for, they'll be back there to, to pray with you. Um, we're going to worship God through giving. There's offering boxes inside the side wall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. So we offer the opportunity every week. We don't pass a plate. It's a response to what God has done. And then there's a bunch of cookies in the back. Uh, again, if you forgot cookies, get them and bring some back so we can send them to the guys on the base on Christmas Eve and go get a whole like sugar high going on. If you got kids, get them all like doped up on sugar and then like hang out for half an hour, then they'll crash. 
You take them home, boom, and they'll sleep in the car. You'll be like, yes. <laughs> Glorious day. You know. And then wake them back up and come to Christmas Eve services next week where we'll focus more upon who Jesus Christ is. I will tell you, our God is a good, good God. And He loves us immensely. And He has placed people throughout church history that are great to look at and the heritage that they lead. But we are to worship only Jesus. And that's my admonition for you at this Christmas season. If you begin to worship Jesus, Christmas will be lived your entire year and not just this short few weeks before Christmas. So live for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being a God has revealed yourself to us that we are not a people who could seek and ever find you, but that you graciously come and show yourself to us. And we ask that in our lives, of all the little things that pop up and long to remove our focus from who you are, that you would constantly remind us of your grace and your goodness, and you would steer the focus of our hearts and our lives back towards you. Father, I ask that you would remind us daily that you are the only God. And to you belong all glory and honor, wisdom and strength and everything that we as a people need to live a life that fully glorifies you. So today, teach us how to honor you by how we love those around us and to leave a deeper heritage behind us after we are gone. And to always, constantly, consistently steer people to you and your great name and all that we do. And we ask these things in your son's great and good name. Amen.